0: The bias, the lies, and deceit, and bring forth real talk from real people about real news, providing the out loud truth and capturing the essence of a new generation all in a fast-paced hour. This is Viewpoint, the Midweek Report.
1: Life is a series of never-ending stories. As I see it, my job is to tell those stories in a way that will give some clarity to this complicated and perplexing world. Welcome to Viewpoint, the midweek report. I'm Alana Friedman, and over the next hour, I'll try to give you an in-depth look into some of this week's most important news stories. You see, it's not just about what's happening. It's about what it means in the real world, the one that you and I live in. I'll give you my take on these stories. I I may not be politically correct, in fact, I can promise you that I probably won't be, but I'll give it to you straight, and if I can bring a little clarity to the picture, well, then I'll know I've done my job. The first big story is that finally, at long last, two years and $25 million later, Special Counsel Robert Mueller finished his investigation. And on Friday, March 22nd, he turned his report over to the United States Attorney General, William Barr. The investigation was long and torturous and seemed like it would never, never end. It was originally set up to find out whether or not the Trump campaign had colluded with Russia to interfere with and influence the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. But the investigation went way beyond its mandate. In order to discover crimes committed by the president, it went down a series of very questionable rabbit holes and managed to send five other people to prison on various charges that had nothing to do with the purpose of the investigation. The charges included bank fraud, tax fraud, lying to the FBI, and so forth. Perhaps the panel thought that by investigating and putting pressure on those people close to the campaign, like George Papadopoulos, Michael Cohen, and Paul Manafort, as well as others, that these men would turn over evidence that could prove that Donald Trump and or his campaign were guilty of collusion with Russia. But the commission's scheme essentially failed, because When the investigation came to an end, although Mueller said they had not come to any conclusions on the obstruction of justice charge, the final report declined to recommend any new indictments, any, and it didn't contain any new evidence that the president or his campaign had engaged in collusion, conspiracy, or anything else. At the end of the day, the investigation did result in 99 charges, 37 indictments or guilty pleas, and five prison sentences. But in nearly two years of searching, no Americans were ever accused of collusion with Russia or anyone else in an attempt to influence the election. Okay, so Mueller released his report and we all waited to hear what was in it. Barely two hours later, before anyone had a chance to even read it, a group called the Electronic Privacy Information Center filed a lawsuit against the Department of Justice, demanding that the DOJ release the final report to the public in its entirety, and not just the report, but all supporting evidence as well. Period. The text of the lawsuit explained, The public has a right to know the full scope of Russian interference in the 2016 United States presidential election, and whether the President of the United States played any role in such interference. The public also has the right to know whether the President unlawfully obstructed any investigation into Russian election interference or related matters. Unquote. Wait a minute. That is exactly what the entire two-year, $25 million investigation was all about. And now we have the report. So what's your hurry? Let's see what's in it. Meanwhile, the Democrats in Congress did more or less the same thing. They threatened action unless the whole of the report and all of the supporting documents would be released to the public and quickly. In reality, it's more than likely that some of the report will will be released to the public and some will not because the report contains information from grand jury testimony, which is by definition secret, And to expect that every document and all the testimony, some of which may be classified, will also be released to the public, nope. Uh Uh-uh. Not likely. So anyway, when the news broke that the Mueller report was finally out, the mainstream media was stunned. The investigation was finished and there were no new indictments and no findings of collusions. Oh my gosh! Chris Matthews, for example, was furious that no charges would be filed against any of the Trumps and that the people he called Trump's henchmen wouldn't face criminal charges either. Matthews, who of course knows what's what much better than Mueller, concluded that Mueller had, quote, missed the boat, he said. How could they let Trump off the hook? Well, maybe because Trump wasn't guilty of what everyone on the left wanted him to be guilty of. And after two years and $25 million, there was no evidence, no proof, that any of what they hoped for had ever happened. Bill Maher went even further. He said, quote, I don't need the Mueller report to know he's a traitor. I have a TV, unquote. Really? And having a TV makes you an expert in what exactly? CNN also put their two cents in. They posted a list of questions that they said the report must answer, such as, did Trump cooperate with a hostile foreign power to win the 2016 election? And did he try to enrich himself with multi-billion dollar business deals in Russia? And did the president obstruct justice by firing FBI director James Comey? You know, Even if the report answers all their questions, that won't be enough for the Democrats. All indications are that the release of the Mueller report is only a way station in the long-range mission of the Democrats to derail the presidency of Donald J. Trump at all costs. So what's next? It's easy to assume that the left will not accept the report, no matter what it says, because they've already started firing their guns on automatic. The Mueller report didn't accomplish their goals, which are to find the president guilty of collusion and obstruction and, if possible, and best of all, maybe even treason. It means that this game is far from over. And there's one more thing. You know, the fact that the Mueller commission took two years and $25 million to find out absolutely nothing raises more questions than it answers, such as, why did the investigation last so long? And why couldn't they acknowledge, like the rest of us, that the infamous dossier, the one that their whole case depended on, was a work of fiction? We knew that a long time ago. And why couldn't the commission accept what the rest of us knew, that the dossier, again, was created out of whole cloth by former MI6 spook Christopher Steele, that it was paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the DNC, and that it was used fraudulently to obtain a FISA warrant so that it could be entered into the record as proof of President Trump's crimes. But these are not the questions that the Democrats want answered. Instead, they want to go back all the way back to the very beginning and raise all the old questions all over again. Because, in spite of all their dependence on the findings of the report to prove Trump's guilt, now that it's out and it doesn't support their agenda, they refuse to believe it. They've got to protect the earlier statements they made that accused Trump of terrible, terrible things. For example, Nancy Pelosi said, quote, We saw cold, hard evidence of the Trump campaign, and indeed the Trump family, eagerly intending to collude possibly with Russia, unquote. And Congressman Adam Schiff said, Quote, "I think there's plenty of evidence of collusion or conspiracy in plain sight." Unquote. Now these are not freshman congressmen, you know. They are two leaders in Congress. Adam Schiff is chair of the House Intelligence Committee, and he gets to see some of the most highly classified intelligence that exists in government. And Nancy Pelosi, she's House Speaker, and she is my goodness, she is third in line for the presidency. So they need to be taken seriously, even though what they say about the president is hardly credible anymore. And then there's Democrat congresswoman from California, Maxine Waters, who I must say, even at her best, is a predictable sideshow. But she must somehow stand by her statement that she made publicly back in 2017. Quote, here you have a president who I can tell you and guarantee you is in collusion with the Russians to undermine our democracy. Unquote. And after the report was turned over to Attorney General Barr, she doubled down on her accusation. She said, quote, He's been saying no collusion, no collusion, no collusion over and over again for a long time now. And he's going to try to conclude that this report is proof that there is no collusion but we cannot allow him to get away with this, unquote. And all this uproar without a shred of proof. Two days after he received the report from Mueller, Attorney General Barr released a summary. Now, according to his summary, President Trump was vindicated of the charges of colluding with Russia to influence the 2016 election. In a reasonable and fair world, that should have been enough to let the American people get back to their lives and move on. But that is not what's going to happen. The Democrats are going to go over the Mueller investigation with a fine-tooth comb to see if they can find something the commission missed and use it as a weapon against Trump. And new legal battles against Trump are brewing already over things that have nothing to do with Russia or collusion. They've already started to discuss ways of proceeding with a new investigation into the obstruction of justice charges that Mueller said were not addressed in his report. When will this childish, vindictive, and very dangerous game end? It is crystal clear that the Democrats are still on the warpath against the President and his family and all of his administration because their main goal is to bring down President Donald Trump at all costs, because he can never, never be forgiven for defeating Hillary Clinton in 2016. As usual, the Democrats do not take defeat easily, and because they expected to find the skeletons in Trump's closets, they, just like the liberal press, cannot come to terms with the fact that there were no indictments against him. There are two more things I would like to say to you, my friends, about where we are today now that this chapter has finally ended. The Mueller investigation has held the nation captive for the better part of two years and spent a huge amount of taxpayer money to pursue what many of us always believed was a glorified witch hunt. The only people who have ever been held accountable in all this are the five men who were sentenced to jail time for crimes that had nothing to do with the purpose of the investigation. But the Mueller probe has certainly helped to divide our nation. The story of the Mueller investigation has been characterized by a biased panel, a totally made-up dossier smearing the president and paid for by the Democrats, a FISA warrant granted because of the fabricated dossier, and an administration that has been harassed by hateful charges, innuendo, and lies from day one. Now, at long last, the investigation is over, but the harassment of the president and the lies about him will no doubt continue for the foreseeable future. In the meantime, nothing has been done to heal the divisions among Americans that continue to grow more angry and more violent every day. There is no forgiveness on the left, and there is no effort towards reaching out for an amicable resolution. What all this points to, and it's very sad for the future of this country, I think, is this. The Democrats in Congress have given up the fight for what is good for the country. They are consumed by hatred for the president and what he stands for. They will fight him at every turn and ambush his leadership and his priorities at every opportunity. And there is little hope that there will ever be any change. The real perpetrators of this massive Russia collusion hoax have, so far, gone scot-free. It is not okay that the perpetrators of this nasty collusion hoax and campaign of revenge against the President of the United States have not faced consequences for their actions. America is better than that. Senator Lindsey Graham, now Chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, says there will be an investigation into those who are responsible for the massive fraud that led to the Mueller investigation. We'll see. But until now, there's been no accountability for any of it and no one has been held responsible. The Democrats in Congress don't seem to care about what is good for the country. They don't even seem to care about what is good for their constituents. What they do care about, more than anything, and to the exclusion of most other things, is political power. The power to drive a national agenda that will enable them to keep the power they have and then, maybe, they'll have time to worry about the country. The atmosphere that the left has created through the hatred and bitterness that drive them is disheartening, to say the least. If Congress continues down this path, then the dreams of our forefathers will be left on the dustbin of history. But I have to believe that there is hope for America and that the work we do today to rebuild the bridges that are being destroyed will be recaptured in a beautiful America of tomorrow, one we will be proud to leave to our children and our grandchildren. But we'd better get our act together and work hard, very hard, to bridge the gulf that separates us now. So that's my take on the Mueller report. It's not conclusive, of course, because it's all still going on. But this is a situation of, stay tuned, it's not going to get any less interesting. Okay. On Monday, the president signed a proclamation declaring that the U.S. recognizes the Golan Heights as a part of sovereign Israel. In the next segment, we're going to take a look at what that really means and why it is so important. But before I do that, we need to take a hard break so we can hear from the good people at America Out Loud. And then, when I come back, we'll talk about the Golan Heights, and I'll tell you why I think we need to understand it better. So stay right where you are. I'll be right back.
0: The America Out Loud talk radio app is on Android or Apple. It's the perfect way to listen in to the new generation of talk shows and hosts who are ready to inform and inspire. Well, the Out Loud perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an Out Loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Com. Glitcher News and Entertainment Network, where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Viewpoint, the weekly report. I'm Alana Friedman, and I want to tell you about a story that hit the news over the weekend and briefly took center stage on Monday. President Trump welcomed Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to the White House. And during a public ceremony, he signed a proclamation recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. So this is the story of how the Golan Heights came to be a strategic issue for Israel and its neighbors, and what the implications of Trump's latest action means for Israel and for her enemies. I want to take a little time talking about where it is, why it is so important, and how it symbolizes both the promise and the threat that are facing the entire world. When I was still a college student, my grandfather gifted me with a trip to Israel. I was part of a small group of college students, all visiting Israel for the first time, on a program called, in Hebrew, Machon HaKaitz, or in English, Summer Institute. As part of the program, we visited a kibbutz in northern Israel where we spent two weeks working in the cotton and cornfields belonging to the kibbutz. I'm sure most of you already know that a kibbutz is a collective community that is unique to Israel. This one was in the most northern part of Israel, right along the Syrian border. Every day we would wake up at the crack of dawn, have a quick breakfast in the community dining room, and then get on a bus that took us out to the fields and orchards, where we mostly pick weeds until about noon when the sun got too hot to work anymore. The bus driver would take us to the fields along a narrow dirt road. On one side was the wide swath of fields and orchards, and on the other was the wall of a steep mountain. The mountain side of the road was heavily lined with barbed wire, and there were signs along the fence warning Israelis not to cross it. This was the border with Syria. It didn't take long during my stay at this kibbutz for something to happen. One day as I was working in the orchards I heard gunfire. The Syrians were shooting at us from caves that were located high up in those mountains that overlooked the fields. No one was hurt that day although later in the week I heard that another worker was wounded. I only then began to understand how difficult it must be to live every day with the threat of enemy gunfire aimed at me as I was working in the kibbutz's own fields. The fields were practically on the border with Syria, and the mountains that overlooked the fields were the Golan Heights. Now, when I was in Israel for the first time, the Golan Heights were in Syria, as I said, the mountains that overlooked the plains of Israel were dotted with small caves, and Syrian soldiers were deployed to those caves, which provided them with an excellent strategic position to watch everything that was going on down below. So let me tell you a little bit about how the Golan Heights got to be in Israel. In 1967, Israel was suddenly attacked by Egypt in the south, Jordan in the east, and Syria in the north. For Israel, this war was an astonishing military accomplishment. Although three enemy armies mounted a surprise attack on three fronts, the war was over in six days and Israel was victorious on all fronts. They still call this the Six Day War. Now that is a really good story, but I'll need to save it for another day. Anyway, Israel defeated the Syrian forces in a brutal tank battle. And the threat from the north essentially ended when Israel captured most of the area known as the Golan Heights. Strategically, it was an important development for Israel's security. All of a sudden, Israel's farmers in the north could take care of their fields and orchards without fear of getting shot at by Syrian soldiers. Israel could see if they were approaching armies coming from the north because their view of Syria was no longer blocked by the Golan Heights. For a while, Israel's amazing victory made this little country a hero in the eyes of much of the Western world. But it didn't take long before that got old, and Israel soon became known among her enemies as the Occupier. World opinion was not kind, and Israel suffered on the international stage. Israel didn't fare well in the UN either. Between 1955 and 2013, 67 years. The United Nations General Assembly passed 77 resolutions condemning Israel for all kinds of what they considered really bad behavior, including crimes against humanity and failure to abide by previous UN resolutions condemning the Jewish state. During that same period, they censured the Palestinian once. In the UN's 73rd General Assembly session, which is going on right now, the EU member states voted for resolutions to criticize countries like Iran and Syria and North Korea and so forth. Each country was chastised once. But Israel, in the same session, was criticized 16 times. Now, these same EU states, interestingly enough, didn't introduce a single resolution critical of the human rights abuses in countries like China, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Pakistan. Hmm. Anyway, in 1981, Israel realized that the strategic position of the Golan Heights was absolutely critical to the safety of the country, and so it unilaterally annexed the Golan to the state of Israel. The world did not accept it, and of course, Israel was censured for that as well. So when President Trump signed a proclamation this past week recognizing the Golan Heights as a part of sovereign Israel it was a really big deal. Now in order to understand how important this recognition is I need to tell you something about the area and its history. Many people don't realize that Israel is a tiny little country As you may already know, it's actually smaller than the state of Vermont. And if you were to put it in the center of a map of the United States, it would probably get lost completely. So the addition of the Golan Heights to the map in 1967 was significant. So here's a bit of history about how deep the Jewish connection to the Golan really is. It goes all the way back to the Bible, where the Golan is called Bashan and in Genesis 15, God promised Bashan to the patriarch Abraham and to the people of Israel in an everlasting covenant. What is not generally known is that Jews lived in the Golan from biblical times until 70 AD when the Romans drove them out in a series of bloody battles that killed more than 10,000 Jews from the city of Gamla alone. Jews returned to the Golan from time to time throughout history and continued to live there until the Turkish Ottoman took their land and drove them out again in 1898. Then, in 1923, the entire Golan was given away by the British to the French mandate over Syria and Lebanon. So when the Israelis came back to the Golan in 1967, it was as though they were coming home. They immediately began to look for their roots in new archaeological excavations. Over time, they found the remains of 34 synagogues as well as 2nd century Jewish coins inscribed with the words for the redemption of Jerusalem. Since 1967, the Golan has been developed into beautiful communities, wineries, and home to nearly 20,000 Jews. There are also nearly the same number of Druze and some Alawites who lived there before the Six-Day War and stayed on After the Israelis came to settle the Golan Heights is not a large tract of land not as these things go as it it's about 40 miles from north to south and an average of about 12 miles from east to west but the headwaters of some of Israel's most important small rivers originate in the Golan they flow down south into the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. Because the Golan gets a good bit of rain in the course of the year, these headwaters are able to supply Israel with more than 15% of its water. The Golan has also become a big tourist attraction. Imagine this. In one day, you can visit the Hamad Gader hot springs and crocodile farms, the ruins of a crusader's fortress called Nimrod Castle, gorgeous waterfalls, and a wealth of nature trails and magnificent vistas. And here's something you won't see every day. After you ski at the Mount Hermon Ski Resort, you can take a three-hour drive and find yourself right in the middle of the desert. Some of Israel's most famous wineries are also located in the Golan because the combination of rich volcanic soil and the weather create ideal conditions for vineyards. But none of that is the real reason why the Golan is so important to Israel. All you have to do is stand on one of its highest spots, which is more than 1,700 feet above sea level, and you can see why the area is so strategically important. From that height, if you look to the north, you can see over the broad plains of southernmost Syria, and even on a clear day, you can see the outskirts of its capital, Damascus. During the Six-Day War, Israeli soldiers were tempted to keep moving north and take the city, But wiser heads prevailed, and the tanks held their line at the current border. Now, if you look to the south, you can see most of northern Israel, to the city of Haifa on the west coast of Israel, to the Sea of Galilee on the east, and all the broad plains in between. In other words, from that spot, you can see almost all of northern Israel. From a strategic point of view, whoever occupies this land in the north commands a view of all the land to the north and the south. From Israel's point of view, it is essential for the protection of all of northern Israel. When Israel originally took the Golan, the main concern was to prevent Syrian attacks against the northern communities in Israel. But in recent years, Iran has been building a powerful presence in this area, supported by Hezbollah terrorists. Recently, tunnels were found on the Israeli border with Syria dug painstakingly by Hezbollah right under the border fences and under the towns themselves. In one such tunnel, the Israelis closed it by pouring so much concrete into it that they could see the concrete come up through the floor of a building on the Syrian side and flowed right out into the street. So Israel's security is all about keeping its communities safe and secure from terrorist attacks and it is also about maintaining a presence in that strategic area that is strong enough to keep Iran's growing presence at bay and enable Israel to guard its borders and the nation as a whole much more effectively. The acknowledgement by President Trump that the Golan is now recognized officially as a part of Israel is a welcome development, and it shows that the relationship between America and Israel is stronger than ever. Israel responds in kind with partnerships and all kinds of technological developments in area in which Israel has remarkable strength. And despite the growing anti-Israel voices on college campuses and even in Congress, this relationship will remain strong for a long time. Now there's another part to this story. It comes from the southern part of the country. Early Sunday morning, a rocket was fired from Gaza and made a direct hit on the private home in the town of Mishmeret, north of Tel Aviv. Seven people, including two young children and a baby, were injured and taken to the hospital. Their lives were saved because they were able to take shelter in the home's security room. Now, in Israel, almost every home and building is built with a reinforced concrete security room which can withstand the impact of a rocket or a bomb. Isn't it sad that they have to do that? But anyway, that's the situation. So this family had seconds in which to wake up when they heard the sirens and race to the shelter. The shelter saved their lives because the house around them was completely demolished. You may remember that a few days earlier, Hamas fired two rockets into Israel that did no damage, but triggered a strong military response from Israel. The Air Force bombed 100 Hamas targets in Gaza. Hamas claimed that the strikes were a mistake and that two young recruits had set it off accidentally. Within hours, a ceasefire was achieved. This last rocket attack, though, was, according to Hamas, also a mistake. Only this time, they're blaming it on the bad weather. Israel's response has been severe. A long night of bombing included the destruction of the office of Hamas leader, Ismail Khania, But another unofficial ceasefire was achieved here as well. Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu was supposed to address the American-Israel organization, AIPAC. They had a convention in Washington this week, and he was supposed to address them in person while he was in the United States to meet with President Trump. But with the latest rocket attack, he instead returned home to deal with the emergency and he addressed the conference by satellite transmission. He told the 18,000 attendees that Israel was prepared to do whatever is necessary to defend the country. While he was still in Washington, he also authorized the Israeli Air Force to launch a large-scale retaliatory bombing attack. Israel is facing some difficult elections on April 9th and it is possible that Hamas thinks that Israel's hands are tied because the prime minister is facing stiff opposition and may, in fact, lose the election and his position as prime minister. Perhaps Hamas is willing to take a chance that Israel will not strike back with exceptional force because of the elections. But Hamas, which is facing unrest among its own people, is desperately afraid of Israel's power. This cat-and-mouse game of small strikes then, oops, sorry, has a very short life. But at the time of this broadcast, Hamas has promised to stop the rockets and commit to Egyptian mediation efforts as long as Israel will stop the airstrikes. Israel is, in the meantime, on high alert. Schools are closed, residents have been instructed to stay near shelters, and war is a definite possibility. But it's one that both sides want to avoid. So what does this have to do with the Golan? Well, as I mentioned before, Israel is a tiny country. One fear that has been discussed many times is the possibility that if Hamas is engaging Israel forces in the south, Hezbollah may see this as an opportunity to strike from the north. With the support of Iran, a longtime enemy of Israel who has sworn to destroy the Jewish state, an attack from the north would make the conflict much more difficult and much more dangerous for Israel. The acknowledgment and support by the U.S. for the annexation of the Golan Heights to Israel's territory adds a cushion of security to Israel's position. The electronic surveillance capabilities that Israel now has on the Golan provides an early warning system that will help to protect Israel in the event of an attack from the north. So the connection between the north and the south is a very tight one. And if something happens in the south to trigger a war in Gaza, The possibility of a war breaking out in the north, in Syria as well, has to be taken into account. And if war breaks out in Israel, you can be sure that America will have Israel's back. Stay tuned. This story is far from over. Okay, let's pause for another short break, and then we'll be back with several stories that you may find very interesting. Don't go away.
0: We are the vision of the voices. You can email us at talkatamericaoutloud.com.
2: Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way.
0: America Out Loud is a groundbreaking news and lifestyle platform requiring top-tier analysts, strategic thinkers, and impressive commentators. I'd like you to meet Colonel Jim Warshuk. He's retired from the United States Air Force. He is a career senior intelligence and special missions officer. He's a columnist and commentator. All back at America Out Loud. Colonel Warshuk, what is the state of our military today? We are in a strategic rebuilding, and we are going to reprogram and reprioritize our mission, our capability, our training, and what we need to do to keep America secure and safe. How can America Out Loud support not only the military, but peace around the world? I think the best thing we can do, certainly for our listeners and for Americans, is to make sure Truth is paramount in every single aspect of commentary, in writings, in whatever it is that America Outlaw provides to its listeners and Americans. That is, that is absolutely key. If we don't provide that, then we're really not providing a service to anyone. We're just another news organization, and we actually become just part of the mainstream media. We've got to be above that each and every day. Our goal is simple. It's to deliver an honest analysis and diverse opinions to keep you informed, all back at americaoutloud.com Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio
1: Welcome back to Viewpoint midweek report. I'm Alana Friedman bringing you my take on the news of the week and here are a few more stories that are making the news. The first one is a story about a crisis that isn't a crisis that really is a crisis. Did you know there is a crisis on our southern border? The president says there is and I for one am inclined to believe him. The Democrats say there isn't one They say the president has made it up in order to engage in a massive building project at the taxpayer's expense. But I don't really think that's it at all. Tell me, what exactly constitutes a crisis? Is it a crisis if 76,000 illegal immigrants are caught crossing our border during the shortest month of the year? Is it a crisis if we don't know how many crossed the border that month who didn't get caught? Is it a crisis if thousands of children are brought over the border with single adults and we don't know if they're even related, but we have to take them in because that's the law when the adult says they're a family? If that adult is lying, if he's really a coyote who is being paid to bring the child across, then what will happen to these children once they get here? Is that a crisis? Is it a crisis if there are already nearly 26 million illegal immigrants in the country, and thousands are pouring in every day? Is it a crisis when ICE is forced to release thousands of illegals on our side of the southern border because all the facilities that we have to house them are full? And is it a crisis if the latest caravan from southern Mexico just left for the northern border with over 1,200 wannabe illegal immigrants... And is it a crisis if, because these tens of thousands of people are not being screened for communicable diseases, that they are bringing diseases back into our country that we thought we had eradicated decades ago? Is it a crisis if diseases like measles, mumps, chicken pox, smallpox, tuberculosis, typhus, and even leprosy are appearing in our communities and infecting our own children? And what about the opioids that are pouring over our southern border or other drugs like meth and heroin? And what about the human trafficking? Is it a crisis when as many as 170,000 people are trafficked into our country every year and that that number includes young children, teenagers, women, and men? Is that a crisis? When is a crisis not a crisis? When the Democrats say it isn't? But Dana Lesh, a nationally syndicated radio host, said innocent people are paying in blood for the sanctuary city policies that Democrats, including all of the 2020 Democrat presidential primary contenders, are supporting. If the state of California were half as interested in protecting its citizens as it is in protecting people who enter the U.S. illegally, many terrible crimes could have been prevented and many lives could have been saved. And it's not only in California. Every state that supports sanctuary cities is a participant in this dangerous game. The president wants to build a wall. It was the main pillar of his 2016 campaign, and half the voting population agreed with him. But Democrats have given him no support whatever, and he's received hardly any from his fellow Republicans either. How does that even make sense? Do we support human trafficking? Do we want hard drugs that kill our children pouring into our country? When the nation's so-called sanctuary cities invite illegal immigrants to live within their borders and then if they break the law and go to jail, prevent ICE from taking them into custody and even refusing to inform ICE when they're being released, is that okay? When my neighbor died, at the hands of an illegal immigrant who just got the urge to rape and kill a woman. Was that okay? And when a young woman in Nebraska, just out of college, was killed by an illegal immigrant who had been deported twice and should never have been in our country, but who was driving drunk at high speed and smashed into her car as she waited at a red light. Was that okay? And when the angel moms of America mourned their lost children at the hands of illegal immigrants... And there are hundreds of them now. Is that okay? The answer to these and a host of other questions like them is a resounding no, it's not okay. The liberals who want open borders are wrong. And they are endangering our country every day that they fight for sanctuary cities and open borders. And the president who wants to build a wall. But there is good news. It now looks like President Trump will get the chance to build his wall because, although the Senate passed a resolution to end the president's national emergency, it failed to reach a veto-proof majority on it. Trump will undoubtedly veto the resolution, and he will then be able to begin finding the funds to pay for the wall's construction. This is America, my friends, land of the free home of the brave. And if we don't push back against the bullies who want to make this country something it was never meant to be, we will be neither free nor brave. We must stand up to the tyranny of the left and fight sanctuary cities and open borders. And we will build that wall. Now here's something that's been in the news lately. Every once in a while, particularly when elections are looming and right after the election cycle is over, there's talk about doing away with the Electoral College and the argument is getting stronger and louder. Do you remember how shocked everyone was when the question came up in the presidential debates about whether Donald Trump would accept the results of the election? Of course, everybody expected Clinton to win. Trump hedged, suggesting that his acceptance would depend upon whether he believed the votes were counted fairly. But the press tried to convey that even that reservation was somehow un-American, Little did we know then that they'd spend the next four years not accepting the results of the election in which their candidate lost. It might have something to do with how society has changed since the early days of this country. Heck, it's changed enormously since I was growing up, and that's not that long ago. When I was growing up, a lot of things were different. We were taught to love this country, to honor our founding fathers. We learned to compete and get recognition if we did well. And if we didn't win, well, we were taught to be good sports, to understand that in life, sometimes we win, and sometimes we lose. But we'd try harder next time, maybe figure out how to do it better, and maybe we'd win next time. These were good life lessons. But in recent years, a large segment of society has been raised on participation trophies. You'd get recognized just for showing up. They were taught that it didn't matter if you won, so long as you participated. All you had to do was show up. So now, as they become adults, they feel entitled to a win. They feel entitled to everything. There's no tradition of honest competition. If they don't win, they try to figure out how to change the rules in their favor so that they'll win next time, or even worse, they'll get the rules to change for the last competition so the winner loses, And there's a new winner. This is what the Democrats are trying to do, take down the president. That's how they're playing the game. They want to change the rules. Rules changes are being talked about in two areas these days, as our aristocracy feels their right to govern is slipping away. One is the idea of changing how the Supreme Court is staffed, or court packing. That's a big story all by itself, so I'll leave that for another day. But there's also talk about doing away with the Electoral College. Electing the president by national popular vote. Of course, this only comes up when the popular vote result is different from the Electoral College result. And the candidate who won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College is unhappy with the results. And the candidate who won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College is unhappy with the results. So... Here's the thing. The Electoral College isn't just an accident, and it really isn't archaic as some of its critics would like us to believe. It wasn't put into our Constitution by people who never thought of the consequences. It was a compromise necessary to form our union to get the small states to throw in their lot with the big ones. Back when our country was formed, Virginia was a powerhouse of states, so was Massachusetts. But the smaller states, like Maryland, Delaware, and Rhode Island, they didn't want their concerns to be overlooked. So to get everybody on board, it was agreed that certain things would be decided on a state-by-state basis. That's why we have a Senate in which all states are equal, to balance the House of Representatives in which the voting is more nearly proportional to population. And here's an interesting fact you may not remember. I know I didn't until I looked it up in the Constitution that in the rare event that nobody gets an Electoral College majority, it falls to the House of Representatives to choose from among the top three candidates. And if that situation should occur, the choice is made with each state delegation having one vote. That's more like Electoral College than it is like a popular vote because it's not based on population. Anyway, back to the popular vote. That sounds good if you think that each state's voting power should be proportional to population. But why should that be? How about proportional to area? I'm sure Alaska, Texas, and Montana would like that. You could make arguments for basing it on how much each state contributes to the national wealth versus how much it consumes, or the level of education, or any number of things. But any change would involve some states giving up some of their power, and other states getting more. It's easy to guess which of those groups would support the idea. Okay, so what would be the consequence of a change to electing the president by popular vote? Obviously, it would lessen the importance of small states like New Hampshire and Rhode Island. They're small in size, and their populations are also small compared to other states. Now, Alaska and Montana would also lose out because although they're among the largest states, geographically, their population is relatively small. Measured by populations, those huge states suddenly become small. And that's the whole point. If the election is to be fair, all states, all parts of the country, need to be heard fairly. But with a popular vote, the heavily populated states on the east and west coasts will carry the weight. That's what the Democrats want, because the coastal states are mostly blue, while the red states are mostly central. The blue states have the densest populations, and the red states are larger and less heavily populated. So Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, Montana, which are among the states that feed the country, would have very little to say in the outcome of any national election. America's blue states are also, generally speaking, the ones with the biggest populations. Now, how could Montana, with a population of scarcely over a million, or Vermont or Wyoming with less than a million, possibly compete with California with more than 37 million, Florida with more than 21 million, and New York with 19.5 million? The founding fathers thought hard about this and tried to find an alternative to one vote, one person. Their solution was a combination of the popular vote balanced by the final decider, the Electoral College. And there's one more thing. If election results depended completely on the vote count for a popular election, what kind of a nightmare would it be to have to count 200 million votes on election night and be sure that the counting was correct? What would election night even be like watching as the results came in? I'll bet it would go long past election night and the amount of lawsuits that would follow would be endless. We already have court battles over vote counting in a few swing states, the ones we call purple, but red states and blue states could become battlegrounds too. Right now, if a few thousand votes go missing in Massachusetts or New York or California, or if a few thousand votes are found in any of these states, everybody knows how their electoral votes are going to go. If a little voter fraud goes on here, no one seems to care. In some states, the election officials have members of both major parties, each carefully watching to prevent the other side from counting fraudulent votes. But if all votes nationally are counted together, what's going to prevent Chicago or San Francisco from discovering, in quotes, hundreds of thousands of votes, as many as needed, the way Florida did in the last midterm election? Court battles will rage on not in five or six or a dozen jurisdictions, but in hundreds or thousands of them. Let's face it, having a national election decided by popular vote is not one of our best choices. Even if we came to a national consensus that it would be a good thing and changed the laws accordingly, the closest we could come would be to have our national elections decided by the courts. We make a mistake if we oversimplify the solution to voting issues. Let's face it, the compromise that has served us for nearly 250 years is still serving us well. The problem that we have now is not that the voting system doesn't work, but that too many of our candidates are sore losers. Maybe we should start at the elementary school level and start teaching our kids good sportsmanship, and that life is not always fair, and that the good guy doesn't always win, but that if you give it your best shot, that is what, at the end of the day, is important. Now, if I've given you the impression that I really think that fraudulent voting is okay, even if it's in the blue states, even if they have lots of votes, and it won't matter, then let me make it clear. I don't think it's okay at all. I think fraudulent voting destroys the fabric of this democratic republic that we call home. And I'd like to see it change. If the Democrats are successful in eliminating the Electoral College, and America will be electing its president by popular vote, then America will be the worse for it. Not everything in our nation was designed to be democratic. Our system of governance was designed to protect our liberties, and the Electoral College was meant to protect us all from the tyranny of the majority in a nation in which everyone has a voice that can be counted. And the electoral college was meant to protect us all from the tyranny of the majority in a nation in which everyone has a voice that can be counted well that does it for today thank you for spending time with me as we considered some of the big stories of the week and until next time i'm alana friedman and this has been viewpoint the midweek report you're listening to America Out Loud.